Section 31 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Medici, Volume 1, by G. F. Young. This period of the interregnum, when war and its miseries raged over Italy, and confusion and anarchy were rampant in Florence, is nevertheless the time when art reached its culminating point. It was as though men, seeking an antidote to the violence and turmoil around them, turned to the pictures of the great masters of the time, which breathed an atmosphere of peace and rest not to be found elsewhere. The zenith of the art of the Renaissance falls between these years, 1494 and 1512, during which period the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, the frescoes on the roof of the Sixteen Chapel by Michelangelo, and the frescoes of the Camera della Segnatura by Raphael were painted, works in which art reached its highest development. There now succeeds a great army of painters, all of the first rank and all practically contemporaneous, in whose hands art, so long associated almost entirely with Florence, soared forth over all Italy. To mention only the names of the chief of those who all flourished at this epoch is to call up before the mind's eye a mass of art creations such as no other period has produced. The following were all painting at this period, besides many others of less note. Botticelli, Florence. Leonardo da Vinci, Florence. Filippino Lippi, Florence, Lorenzo di Credi, Florence, Fra Bartolomeo, Florence, Michelangelo, Florence, Andrea del Sarto, Florence, Perugino, Perugia, Francia, Bologna, Pinturicchio, Perugia, Luini, Milan, Raphael, Urbino, Carpaccio, Venice, Giorgione, Venice, Titian, Venice, Palma Vecchio, Venice. In the year 1505, there were all working in Florence at one time, Perugino, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Fra Bartolomeo, and Lorenzo di Credi. One may safely say that never on any other occasion were six such painters collected together at one time and place. Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo were at work on their cartoons for the great hall of the Palazzo della Signoria. Footnote, Michelangelo's statue of David had been finished the previous year. Perugino and Lorenzo di Credi were called upon to advise as to where it should be placed. End of footnote. Perugino was engaged on his assumption in the church of the Annunziata, and Raphael was painting his Madonna del Granduca, Pitti, his Madonna del Cardellino, Uffizi, and his fresco of the Last Supper in the monastery of San Onofrio, which bears his signature and the date, 1505. Botticelli was at this time 61, Perugino, 59, Leonardo da Vinci, 53, Michelangelo, 30, and Raphael, 22. Leonardo da Vinci was sent by Lorenzo the Magnificent to Il Moro, 
as the best among the Florentine painters whom he could recommend to him in 1487. He remained with Il Moro for twelve years, during which time he founded the Milanese school of painting. He returned to Florence from 1503 to 1506, after which his principal home was Milan until 1516, when, at the earnest invitation of Francis I, who was anxious to inaugurate the patronage of art in France, he removed to that country and died there in 1519 at the age of 67. Raphael entered the school of Perugino at Perugia in the year 1500 at the age of 17. He came thence to Florence in 1504, being then 21, and painted there for four years. He was summoned by Pope Julius II to Rome in 1508 and worked there under that Pope and his successor Leo X for the remaining twelve years of his life, dying at Rome in 1520 at the age of 37. Michelangelo, whose earliest impulses towards art had been fostered and directed by Lorenzo the Magnificent, whom throughout his life he never forgot went to Rome for the first time in 1496. He worked there until 1500, when he returned to Florence and remained there until 1506, when he was summoned by the Pope to Rome to design an immense tomb, larger and grander than that of any other Pope, which Julius II desired to have constructed for himself. And in 1508 he was given the difficult task of painting the frescoes on the roof of the Sixteen Chapel. But to Michelangelo, grand as was his genius, has been traced the downfall of art, which about two decades later commenced, and which was fully developed long before his death in 1564. Ruskin, carefully tracing out the cause of this downfall, says that so long as artists employed their artistic powers to depict their subjects, art continued to advance. But as soon as they reversed this process, and employed their subject to display their artistic powers, art's downfall began, and that this disastrous change was made by Michelangelo, who practiced the latter method throughout his life, whose unrivaled powers led all to follow him, and who, by adopting a principle alien to the true spirit of art, was the author of its downfall. It would seem that there was in Michelangelo a false idealism which was ready to distort to any extent the character of his subject in order to produce a result which would glorify his powers of execution. This first showed itself in his Bacchus, executed at Rome in 1496 and now in the Bargello Museum, which statue Shelley, while fully appreciating the great powers of execution that it displayed, declared to be a most revolting mistake of the whole spirit of Bacchus. It showed itself still more in his David, 1503, which, astonishing as it is in its execution, is false to the true spirit of art, in that, in order to display the powers of the sculptor, it falsifies the character of the subject, which might just as well be that of a young Samson or Hercules. The same thing is no less apparent in his Moses and in his statue of Lorenzo, Duke of Urbino. In each case, the subject is treated as of no importance, and distorted out of all resemblance to its character, 
in order to form a vehicle for the display of certain powers in the sculpture. There is not one of Michelangelo's statues in looking at which we are not forced by the artist to think not of the man depicted, but of Michelangelo. It is no wonder, therefore, in view of Michelangelo's long life and the leadership which his surpassing genius and the death of all the contemporaries of his earlier years gave to him, that Ruskin, after a prolonged study of the subject, should have traced to him the downfall in art which, not long after Raphael's death, set in. And if anyone should desire to see how great that downfall was, he has but to walk in Florence from Or San Michele, which Donatello's statue of St. George adorns, to the Piazza San Lorenzo, where Baccio Bandinelli's hideous statue of Giovanni delle Bande Nere, executed in 1540, is an eyesore to the whole locality, or into the Piazza della Signoria, where the same artist's no less hideous statue of Hercules slaying Cacus, executed in 1534, disfigures the front of the Palazzo Vecchio. Before quitting the subject of art's zenith and downfall, the part which Pope Julius II played in connection with the former must not be omitted. For in the intervals of war, Julius II, following the Florentine school of thought in philosophy and religion, formulated a scheme which is set forth in the two final achievements attained by the art of painting, Michelangelo's frescoes on the roof of the Sixteen Chapel and Raphael's frescoes on the walls of the Camera della Segnatura, both works being in the Vatican and both executed for Julius II. These works, by two masters which differ so greatly, have yet underlying them a fundamental idea common to both, which, in view of the place and the circumstances, can only have been furnished by the Pope himself. The Florentine school of thought, under the leadership of Cosimo, Lorenzo, Ficino, and Pico della Mirandola, had endeavored to amalgamate Platonism and Christianity. Julius II, surrounded by men trained in that school, went a step further, and in the paintings which he caused to be executed by Michelangelo and Raphael in the Vatican, propounded that both the Jewish dispensation and the Greek philosophy were the antechambers through which the human race was shepherded to Christ. We see this idea first introduced in the frescoes on the roof of the Sixteenth Chapel, wherein Michelangelo demonstrates it by showing the human race led to Christ through a long line of pagan sibyls and Jewish prophets. And we see the same idea elaborated with a still greater wealth of thought in Raphael's frescoes round the Pope's principal official room, the Camera della Segnatura, the first work executed by Raphael on reaching Rome in 1508, frescoes of which the general scheme must have been supplied by the Pope, though the wonderful way in which it is worked out is Raphael's own great achievement. In the four world-renowned pictures which cover the four walls of this room, Raphael, on the text given him by the Pope, preaches his great sermon. And in pictures in which the celebrated scientists, philosophers, and poets of pre-Christian times peer together with those of the Christian epoch, teaches the lesson that the human soul is to aspire towards God 
in each of its faculties. In the exercise of reason and scientific research, the School of Athens, in the exercise of the artistic and aesthetic faculty, Parnassus, in the exercise of the faculty of order and good government, secular and ecclesiastical laws, and lastly, in the exercise of the more definitely religious faculty, theology, the science about God. In these pictures, therefore, two lessons are combined. First, that the pre-Christian philosophers and scientists showed in their degree aspirations towards God and helped to prepare the human race for Christianity. And second, that in man's aspirations towards God, his highest intellectual faculties are not to be excluded, but that all his faculties are to be included and consecrated to God. The thoughts thus expressed show the standpoint which had at length been reached after nearly eighty years' discussion of these subjects by the thinkers of Florence. We are reminded of Pico della Mirandola's speech long before. Philosophy seeks truth, theology finds it, religion possesses it. How much of the sermon belongs to Julius II, and how much to the great artist Raphael, we can never know. But we could have no grander example of the way in which art is a language and has deep thoughts to speak to all who will listen to its words. But there was one event at this time in the world of art, inseparably connected with Pope Julius II, which by no means redounded to his glory or that of any of those concerned in it. Urged on by Bramante and Michelangelo, he committed the enormous vandalism of pulling down the old St. Peter's, rich with a thousand years' historical associations, because it would not hold the huge and tasteless tomb which he had ordered, and erecting instead the present St. Peter's. Regarding this act and the motives which caused it, Ranke remarks as follows. Was it not profoundly significant that a pope should himself resolve to demolish the ancient basilica of St. Peter's, the great metropolitan church, every part of which was hollowed, every portion crowded with monuments that had received the veneration of ages, and determined to erect a temple planned after those of antiquity on its site? Both the factions then dividing the jealous world of art urged Julius II to this enterprise. Michelangelo desired a fitting receptacle for the enormous monument of the Pope which he proposed to complete on a vast scale, and with that lofty grandeur which he had exhibited in his Moses. Yet more pressing was Bramante, whose ambition it was to execute that bold project of raising high in the air on colossal pillars, an exact copy of the Pantheon in all the majesty of its proportions. Many cardinals remonstrated, and it would even appear that there was a general opposition to the plan. So much of personal affection attaches itself to every old church, how much more than to this, the chief sanctuary of Christendom. As Pandivius wrote, he had men of almost all classes against him, and especially the cardinals, not because they did not wish to have a new basilica erected with all possible magnificence, but because they grieved that the old one should be pulled down, revered as it was by the whole world, ennobled by the sepulchres of so many saints, 
and illustrious for so many great things that had been done in it. But Julius was not accustomed to regard contradictions. Without further consideration, he caused one half of the old church to be demolished, and himself laid the foundation stone of the new one. The year 1512 opened with a new series of military operations. France, Ferrara, and Florence, on one side, were against the Pope, Spain, and Venice on the other. The French army was commanded by the brave and capable young general, Gaston de Foix, cousin of Louis XII and only twenty-four years of age. The Spanish forces were commanded by Raimondo de Cardona, viceroy of Naples, and the papal troops were placed by Julius II under Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici. And as to rise in favor with Julius II, one had to be above all things a soldier, Giovanni could not refuse, though he evidently had no talents in that direction. After several brilliant successes had been gained by the French under the leadership of Gaston de Foix, a pitched battle was fought on the 6th April, 1512, at Ravenna, in which the papal and Spanish army was totally defeated by the French, who, however, sustained a serious loss, for at the moment of victory their brave young commander, Gaston de Foix, was killed. This battle was one of the bloodiest on record. And while the commander on the French side was killed, Cardinal Giovanni, the Pope's representative, was taken prisoner by the French and sent a captive to Milan. Pope Julius II was not cowed by this reverse. He rapidly collected a fresh army, the loss of Gaston de Foix seemed to paralyze the French, the tide of victory turned, and within three months the French army was driven across the Alps. Then Julius II turned his arms against Florence, and the troops of the Holy League which he had formed were sent against her, Julius II being determined to put an end to the existing state of things in that city, and to visit Soderini in particular with a wrath for having allowed the assembly of the council at Pisa. Cardona's army of Spanish troops was therefore ordered to advance into Tuscany, and Cardinal Giovanni having escaped from Milan, he, his brother, and his cousin were sent with it, the Pope informing Florence that the terms he required from her was that she should dismiss the gonfaloniere Soderini, pay a fine of 100,000 florins, and allow the Medici to return to Florence. These terms Soderini's government declined to accept, and sent an inefficient force, chiefly composed of Machiavelli's newly organized militia, to oppose Cardona's army at Prato, about ten miles from Florence. Cardona reached Prato on the 28th August, and summoned it to surrender, which, being refused, the attack was at once commenced, and after a feeble resistance, the town was taken by assault on the 29th August. The terrible sack of Prado, which has become proverbial among such events on account of the atrocities committed by the inhuman Spanish troops, ensued. Mr. Hyatt says, The horrors of the sack which followed are without a parallel in history. For twenty-one days no attempt seems to have been made by Cardona to control his savage, greedy, and licentious soldiery. Every building was pillaged. 
the defenseless inhabitants were chased from street to street and slaughtered as soon as overtaken. Neither youth, age, nor sex, neither the sanctity of place nor office were respected. Mothers threw their daughters into wells and jumped in after them. Men cut their own throats, and girls flung themselves from balconies onto the paving stones below to escape from violence and dishonor. It is said that 5,600 Protons perished. A medieval army was on such occasions absolutely uncontrollable, and it is a mistake to speak of Cardona as though he wielded a power over his troops of a kind similar to that possessed by a modern commander and failed to exercise it. Discipline as we understand it scarcely existed in such army at any time, and in the sack of a city not a vestige of it remained. From the moment that a town was taken by assault, there was no longer an army, but only a horde of savage ruffians with arms in their hands, mad with passion, and ready in a moment to turn their weapons against those who for the time were but nominal commanders, should these latter attempt to interfere with their proceedings. The real cruelty was perpetrated by the weak and incapable governing body headed by Soderini in sending a totally insufficient force to Prado, not strong enough to meet Cardona's army with any chance of success, but just sufficient to make the result upon Prado which actually occurred a certainty, and this in the case of a town which had no voice in the matter of offering resistance to that army. The Medici brothers were not present during the whole of these terrible doings at Prato. Giuliano was only there during the first two days, Giovanni for ten days longer. During this time they exerted themselves to do what they could to protect the women and children, among other things getting a guard placed over the great church in which a large number of them had taken refuge. And Giovio states that if the Cardinal de' Medici and his brother Giuliano had not at the risk of their lives opposed themselves to the fury of the conquerors, these enormities would have been carried to a still greater excess. While these horrors were taking place at Prato, Florence was occupied in carrying out a rapid revolution. Immediately on the news being received that Prato had been taken and that these atrocities were being perpetrated there, a number of the citizens, justly attributing all that had occurred to Soderini's mismanagement, forced their way into his room, made him resign his office, and sent him under an escort to Siena, whence he fled to Castelnuovo, where, that town being under the Turks, he felt safe from Julius II, whose personal animosity against him for the matter of the council he well knew. The remaining members of the government hastily signified to Cardona their willingness to allow the Medici to return and agreed to pay the fine which the Pope demanded. And on the 1st September, 1512, the Medici once more entered Florence after an exile of 18 years. Moreover, it was soon evident that the people were glad to get them back again, that it had only been the power of a dominant faction which had kept them out so long, and that the result of the misrule suffered under the government of the latter had sunk deep into the minds of the people. For had it been otherwise, 
the re-establishment of the family in Florence would not have been accompanied by the results which ensued. That they were greeted on their arrival with the old shouts of Palle Palle may not of itself show much. More significant, however, is the fact that the Spanish troops which had escorted them into the city were able within a month to be entirely dispensed with and this notwithstanding that all laws passed since 1494 were repealed, that the Concilio Maggiore established by Savonarola was abolished, and that the government was remodeled on exactly the same lines as in the times of Lorenzo the Magnificent, although a law expressly forbidding this had been passed in 1495. There was no demonstration whatever against these changes, and Professor Villari tells us that after the Spaniards had left, the new government required no support from foreign troops. Also, the writings and conduct of Francesco Valori, Nerli, and Machiavelli fully corroborate the statement made by the latter that even those who disapproved of the present constitutional changes soon reconciled themselves to the return of the old order of things. From the above it is clear that although the Medici returned, in accordance with the terms imposed upon the city by Julius II, yet the people were well content to have it so. They were in fact sick to death of the misgovernment they had experienced for so many years, and ready to welcome a rule which had ever been associated with order and security to life and property. And the conduct of the Medici brothers, Giovanni and Giuliano, was worthy of the occasion. They followed the traditions of their house, and the example that had been set by Cosimo Pater Patria and Piero il Gottoso. Their family had been made to suffer much. They themselves had had to endure for long years the harsh conditions attaching to the life of outcasts and wanderers. They returned to a family home which had been swept bare all the invaluable collections of their ancestors which it had contained when they left it, having been wantonly destroyed or carried off. Nevertheless, their father Lorenzo's speech of forty-six years before was not forgotten by his sons, and they showed that they knew how to conquer by showing that they knew how to forgive. The vindictive policy which among the Florentines invariably accompanied the return to power of a banished faction was by the Medici entirely rejected. There were no executions, prohibitions, confiscations, or banishments, except in the case of Piero Soderini, who had been banished by the Florentines themselves before the Medici returned, and even he was afterwards befriended by Giovanni. In this manner did the Medici once more set up their rule in Florence, and all things seemed to augur well for its satisfactory continuance especially as it was decided that the rule should be placed in the hands of Giuliano, both Giovanni and Giulio being anxious to depart to Rome, where the election of a new pope was imminent. End of section 31